Well, this morning we'd like to uh, focus on Thanksgiving, which has really already been the theme of our worship service. So I invite you to join with me in turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 19, but uh, before we study the passage together, I thought I'd uh, kind of walk through uh, what we're celebrating on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Uh, Thanksgiving, as we all know, has become a national holiday, but it's rooted in the activity of the pilgrims. Back in the year 1620, there were 102 pilgrims. A good portion of those were religious separatists, Puritans, really. They held the Puritan theology, and they were escaping the persecution that they were experiencing not only in England, but even when they had migrated to Holland for a period of time, the situation to thrive just wasn't there. So because of the persecution for their faith, the religious convictions in England, they couldn't stay there without being put to death. So they fled to the new world. So they were separatists, but they were Calvinists because they were very Puritan in their theology. Along with those religious separatists, there were a number of other individuals that joined the group. They were craftsmen. They had different skills and different ways to uh, help them survive in the new world. So they got on the Mayflower in the year 1620. They spent over two months at sea, roughly 66 days. Their desire was to go to Virginia where they had an an opportunity to establish uh, and live their lives there. But the currents and the winds blew them off course, so they ended up far north. And so on November the 9th, they landed at the tip of Cape Cod instead of Virginia in the providence of God. While they were on the ship, they uh, spent uh, the first month living on the ship at night. And during the day, they would go into the land to try to find a place to make a settlement. While they were on the boat, they... The 41 pilgrim religious leaders signed in a, a document called the Mayflower Compact, which in which they agreed to be bound by certain rules of law. So basically what you have is a church group that is forming a civic body politic to conduct their lives in the new world. So this is basically a church that is establishing a government by which they can live in freedom. The principles that were found in the Mayflower Compact basically established the rules of self-governance, which actually are preserved and grow and become a part of our Constitution later on. They would not be ruled by a king per se, but by their own consent. So they stayed on the ship at night. They explored the Cape to find the best location. In mid-December, they started building at uh, the location they chose, which they called Plymouth. They built a large meeting facility 
which uh, also functioned as their church building. They built about seven or so homes for the people to live in. And uh, obviously they, they came to the new world because of their longing for religious liberty and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ among the people who lived in the new world. That was the reason why they came. Well, that first winter, of course, was brutal. They were very ill-equipped to live in the new world. The winter was very severe. And even though 102 came over on the ship, 47 died of illness that first winter. So almost half of them died. It was by the grace of God that uh, the Lord sent an Indian who spoke English. His name was Squanto. And basically through Squanto's skill and ability, he taught them how to fish. He taught them how to hunt. He taught them how to farm. And because of Squanto's ministry to them, and they became very good friends, uh, basically they began to slowly thrive. It was in the fall of 1621 that they celebrated the first what we refer to as a Thanksgiving feast. It was really a harvest feast. They invited the Indians, or about 90 Indians that showed up. They had shot about four deer, and they had turkey. They had their crops that they had raised. They had nuts on the ground. They had fish, and they had quite a celebration. From the pilgrims' perspective, obviously, this was a time to give thanks to God for His blessing, His provision. And in all of this, we find that that Thanksgiving, the celebration of the holiday, is given to us by the pilgrims who have left us a rich legacy that in spite of all the tragedy that they had to go through, all the loss, all the challenges, all the defeats, all the death that they experienced, that they wanted to give praise to God for what they had. So that the pilgrims have left us a very rich legacy of the importance of being a thankful people. And once a year we celebrate that in the shadow of the event of the Mayflower crossing over the pilgrims, their desire for religious liberty, to advance the gospel of Christ. But this rich legacy that they've left us, of course, is is more than just a once a year celebration. Because as we've already heard quoted from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, in everything we are to give thanks because this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. In everything, give thanks. Not just on Thanksgiving Day, but every day. So what we celebrate on, on Thursday is merely a reminder that our attitude should be one of gratitude 365 days a year. Being a thankful person obviously takes a conscious, deliberate effort with the help of the Spirit of God because it's so much easier just to be critical, grouchy, and malcontent. It comes natural to us. And yet what we're commanded in the Word of God is to be a thankful people and not just giving thanks here and there, but giving thanks in everything, everything. And we all fall short uh, quite a bit. So what I'd like for us to do is to 
look at Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. And we're going to study a passage that emphasizes the rarity of a thankful heart. And this is one of the great uh, lessons we're to, uh, we're to learn uh, from this, this passage. Um, so we start in verse 11 of Luke chapter 17. And I'd just like to read this very familiar passage to us. And uh, let's reflect on it some and see what the Lord might have to, uh, to teach us and encourage us uh, by way of this uh, wonderful text. So starting in verse 11, we read that while he was on the way to Jerusalem, and of course this is the Lord Jesus in the context, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village. Ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. So as we look at this uh, passage, obviously one of the main points here is just to show how rare a thankful heart is. So we begin reading in the passage that in verse 11, the Lord Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And He entered a village, verse 12, and ten leprous men approached him at a distance. Now we've all heard how miserable the life is of a leper, those who are afflicted with this disease, because not only did it deform their physical body, it gave them great pain as their joints gradually dissolved away, but it also robbed them of human mercy and interaction compassion, and even medical treatment. It was a, a dangerous disease. It was a loathsome disease. In Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45 and 46, says that when a leprous man, when he contracts leprosy, he has to tear his clothes. He has to uncover the, the hair of his head. And whenever someone starts coming near him, he has to cover up his mustache and cry out, unclean, unclean, to warn people to stay away from them. That was the life of a leper. So that probably the worst part of being unclean in this regard is that lepers had to live alone. His dwelling had to be outside the camp. 
So lepers became outcasts. They were cut off from family. They were cut off from friends. They were cut off from the synagogue or the temple. So it was, it was a wretched disease indeed. You know, it's one thing to be sick. It's another to have a sickness that even your family won't come near you. And a doctor won't even come and see you. But that's kind of the, the whole atmosphere of contracting leprosy. This was the effect it had upon you. That's why in verse 12, they were standing at a distance. They can't walk up to the Lord. That was totally inappropriate. They weren't allowed to get close to other people. So in verse 12, they're standing at a distance because you can't mingle with the healthy people. Their whole lives were ruined and destroyed, and they were basically as good as dead. And, and when, you, when you think of people living that way, I mean, your heart just goes out to them because of what they've lost. They've lost everything. They're like the walking dead. No one wants to be around them. No one's going to invite them over to their home for a meal. No one wants to come close. They see you, they'll turn and run from you because you have leprosy. In addition, what we're told uh, in this passage is that this man who, one of the men among the, the twelve, among the ten, excuse me, uh, was a leper who was also a Samaritan. Others, we would assume the other nine probably were Jewish. Could have been maybe some other people mixed in there. But you have a Samaritan that's in the mix. And this Samaritan, it's interesting that you have these Jewish lepers now joining up with the Samaritan leper. And you kind of get the idea that misery kind of breaks down dividing walls between people. Barriers are removed. Normally, Jews and Samaritans would never socialize with each other, but they're kind of brought into a sort of suffering brotherhood because they had no other friends. So the only people who would be around you are other lepers. So you have these Jewish lepers mixed with this Samaritan leper, and they're just banding together out of necessity because they've been forsaken and rejected by everybody else. What strange companions are often thrown together out of desperation and need? We read in verse 13 that they all raise their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they, they all want mercy. So they shout out, Jesus, Master. And no doubt they've heard that Jesus has cleansed other lepers, that He has raise the dead, that he's made the lame to walk. So by calling him master, I don't know what all they had in their mind, but they knew that he was a master over disease and illness and sickness. So they yell out to him, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Mercy is showing goodness to those who are pitiful. Mercy is showing kindness and grace to those who are suffering. They want mercy. 
They want Christ to heal them. So they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Well, in verse 14, all received mercy. Because when he, when he saw them, he said to them, verse 14, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. So they all received mercy. Now it's interesting that the Lord doesn't just say, I heal you, go out and enjoy your life. He says, go show yourself to the priests. Because in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, that's what the law required. If someone wanted to be examined to see if their, their leprosy had been cured or healed, they had to go to the priests. The priests were the judges in those kinds of matters. They were the ones who, who would determine whether you were clean or unclean. So he told them what they should do biblically. They should go and show themselves to the priests because it was necessary under the law of God for them to do that. This is very unlike uh, an earlier cleansing of a leper in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus actually walked up to the leper and touched him. And this is what's so compassionate about the Lord in that case, Luke 5, he actually came up and touched that defiled diseased flesh and cleansed him he said be cleansed and he was immediately healed here jesus sends them on their way directing them to go to the priest now they're obedient to that and and i'm thinking that when jesus says that they don't know what's going to happen but in but in listening to our lord's words those were hopeful words for them and they believe that in some way their lot in life would be improved. Jesus is just telling them to go show themselves to the priest. Now, right at that moment, they're not cleansed yet, but they respond in obedience. And it says, as they were going in obedience to the Lord, they were cleansed. And so this is a, a great uh, lesson in and of itself that many of our blessings come as we're walking in the way of obedience to the Word of God. They weren't actually cleansed until they obeyed the Lord. And as they obeyed, the healing came. And there's a great lesson there that we miss many blessings because we're not walking in obedience to the Lord. But they're all obeying. And as they were going, verse 14 they were cleansed. So now we come to verses 15 through 19 to the rarity of a thankful heart. Notice in verse 15, it says, Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. So notice, once this leper realized that he had been healed, in verse 15, when he saw that he had been healed, his response was immediate. He turned back immediately, glorifying God with a loud voice. 
You know, I think what we see in this is that thanksgiving should always be something that's prompted immediately when we realize the blessing that we've just received. Too often times when we delay it or when we don't consciously stop and just praise God for the blessing, then we'll forget and we'll end up not ever giving thanks to God. But once they realize they had been healed and cleansed, once they realize it, this particular, there's only one, that he immediately turned around and began to glorify God. And he did it immediately. What a great uh, example for us. Notice also in verse 15 how intense and passionate he was. He turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. So his heart was in it. I mean, his emotions were in it. He just didn't say, well, thank, thank, thank you, Lord. You know, I mean, it was, thank you, Lord, with a loud voice. And he was glorifying God, praising God. And you can just see the intensity and how, and how much passion he had within his heart. There was this profuse giving glory to God with a loud voice. And I think it tells us that a, a passionate heart cannot be silent. His thanksgiving is, is full-hearted and full-throated. It's not half-hearted. He's not ashamed to speak out the glory of God for the healing that he had received. And then look at verse 16. It's also very worshipful. He fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to God. Not just lip service, but he was bowing in worship before Christ. His whole body was giving worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you go to a concert today, and there's a, there's a great difference between a, a polite applause and someone who's jumping up and down, screaming and, and yelling, a standing ovation. It was just so incredible. Because the body expresses the magnitude of our appreciation. Polite applause. Or just standing ovation. The whole body communicates what's in the heart. And with this leper who was a Samaritan, he fell on his face before the Lord. He prostrated himself before Christ. And he just gave him thanks. He worshiped him, giving thanks and praise to him. He was on his face, unworthy of standing in his presence. His body put him on the ground in humility before the sovereign master that had just healed him. Very worshipful. And then, of course, in verse 16, we're told he's a Samaritan. Later on in verse 18, Jesus will refer to him as a foreigner. It wasn't one of the Jewish lepers who gave glory to God. It was a non-Jew. And Luke in his gospel is really written mainly to Gentiles. And so he'll use stories that bring these non-Jews into a place of, of great prominence as receiving grace and mercy from God. Be like the, the Good Samaritan, another Samaritan story. It wasn't the priest that showed mercy. wasn't the scribe that stopped and helped the man who had been beaten up 
but it was a Samaritan. And he all paid for the hospital bill. He paid for the care. He paid for the food. He was a Samaritan. Now for, for Luke to draw attention to Samaritans like this as being more spiritual, more godly than a Jew, that would have been insulting to Jews. Why? Well, we know because Jews viewed the Samaritans as apostates, as unclean, as defiling, as, dis- as a despised piece of human trash. And yet Luke is pointing out that it was a Samaritan that had the heart of worship. It was the Samaritan that wanted to come and give thanks to God. None of the Jewish lepers did, but it was the Samaritan. The Jews would even avoid walking through Samaria where the Samaritans lived. They would rather walk way around the area, adding many, many miles to their journey when they're trying to get to Jerusalem because they don't want to be defiled by walking through the land of the Samaritans. They really hated each other. They had no dealings with each other. And yet what Luke is emphasizing and what the grace of God is showing is that God's mercy goes out to all kinds of sinners. Even the groups you despise the most, think of them. Who are they? Don't speak it out. People you despise, you look down on. Those are objects of God's mercy, some of them. And we're included in it because we're no better. And what we see in the way this would have impacted a a Jew reading this, he would have responded with with a bit of a rage within him. This despicable Samaritan, and yet he had more grace than the Jews did. And part of what this in the mix is trying to show is that God has a long arm of grace and it doesn't stop at the border of Israel. It stretches up into the land of Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth that you cannot confine the grace and the mercy of God to one group of sinners because it's going to claim sinners from all groups. And so he's trying to communicate, I think, an important lesson that the gospel is breaking out of its old national boundaries and spreading to the Gentiles and foreigners, that Christ came to establish an international church. And the very people we despise, by the grace of God, some of those people will be numbered among that elect community. And we're to take the gospel to everybody We're not to hate people. We're to see them as potential objects of the mercy and the grace of God. So this whole Samaritan thing here is very instructive for us today because we have a tendency to look down on people groups and we need to see them as potential objects for the saving grace of God. And so here is a Samaritan. He was the only one that came back. None of the Jews did. But here's this Samaritan had more grace in his heart than all the chosen people of God. He was the only one that came back. Again, what we see in here is 
Luke's desire to break down barriers and break down dividing walls in the way we think about other people. And to pray for God's grace and mercy to invade their lives as it has into ours. In verse 17 and 18, Christ now is marveling at the return of only one. He says in verse 17, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And so what Christ is doing is He's, he's openly marveling that He had cleansed cleansed ten of these lepers, and yet only one of them came back. And he's amazed at that. What? Their lives have just been transformed, every single one of them. And yet they've taken it for granted. You see, those who receive blessings from God on a daily basis are many. But those who actually stop and return and give thanks to God are very few. We're so happy to get God's blessings. We take them greedily. We take them with our right hand and with our left hand. We take them for granted because every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above, from God. So God deserves our thanksgiving for every blessing that He gives us. The little ones, the itty-bitty ones, and the great big ones. And that's what we're supposed to do. In everything, give thanks. So notice what the Lord also emphasizes in verse 19. This is really quite amazing. That Jesus says to this one leper who returned to give him thanks, to give him glory. He said, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, literally in the Greek, it says your faith has saved you. This, this word for save sometimes can refer to a physical healing, like being healed of some disease. But it also can refer to spiritual salvation. And I think what we're seeing in this passage is that this one leper who came back to give thanks to God is receiving now another blessing that the nine are not receiving. All ten receive the outward cleansing, but only one is receiving the inward cleansing. And I think that's when the Lord is saying to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. It's more literally, stand up, your faith has saved you. Because Jesus is now imparting to this one leper who by his thanksgiving is showing his faith and trust in the Lord so that now it's this one leper and only this one leper because he came and gave thanks to Christ is now receiving a blessing far greater than the earlier one he had just received. And so what we see as we begin to draw some lessons from this is that the thankful heart, those who have a more consistent, perpetual, thankful heart will receive more blessings than those who don't have that kind of a heart. 
First off, we should all have a thankful heart for everything that we have, right? We should give thank to God, thanks to God for all of our blessings, including our temporal ones. We can thank God this morning, and you can thank God this morning for your health. It may not be 100%, it may be 80, maybe 15, but you can thank God for the 15. We're to give thanks to God for all of our blessings. We can thank God for our health. We can thank God for our material possessions, whether it's great or whether it's little. We can thank God for what we have. Don't take it for granted. In everything, give thanks. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. That includes our material possessions as well. We can thank God for our daily food. Someone once said that we're, we're not dogs. Have you ever seen a dog stop and give thanks for his food before he eats it? You stick it in a bowl in front of that dog's face, and what does he do? He just plows his face right in the middle of it. We're not dogs. We're believers. We, we, we realize that our daily bread comes from God. I mean, the Lord teaches us to pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So we're to pray for it, and then when God gives it, we should respond and give thanks for it as well. We can give thanks to God for all of our temporal comforts and temporal joys. And I think it's biblical to do that. But you see, all those blessings can be easily lost as well, right? They can be fleeting. They can be short-lived. They can be unpredictable. We have them today. We lose them tomorrow. Even if we hang on to them tightly and keep them throughout our life, when we die, we leave them all behind. And even though it's still appropriate to give thanks to God for all those blessings, and we should regularly, it's even more appropriate that we give thanks to God for the blessings we cannot lose. Right? All the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus the blessings of forgiveness of sins. The blessing of being adopted into the family of God. The blessing of our hope in heaven. The blessing of God choosing us from before the foundation of the world to be His chosen elect people. The blessing of just Jesus dying and suffering the wrath of God that I should deserve to suffer. Those spiritual blessings, we cannot lose those. They can't be stolen. They can't be withered away. They cannot fade. These are the blessings that we should praise God for. We should be a thankful people. That attitude of gratitude. But how many of us do that? The thankful heart also will receive more blessings than those who don't give thanks. How much sweeter and greater was the final blessing to this leper who had been cleansed, who was a Samaritan, than the previous one? How much more precious was it? The first blessing of being healed from his leprosy was a rich blessing. I mean, it's incredible. But the second blessing was richer still. The first blessing brought 
to him a restoration of his fellowship with men. He could go home again. He could see his family. If he was married, he could hug his wife. He could uh, hug his children. He could go worship at the temple. He could go to work again. He could be among people again. The first healing was an incredible blessing. It restored his fellowship with man. But the second blessing was far greater because it restored his fellowship with God. And that is a broken relationship that only Jesus Christ can heal. And it is an eternally greater blessing than just having the leprosy taken from his body. The thankful heart will receive more blessings than the heart that forgets to give thanks. A thankful heart is really a, it's like a, a gateway virtue. It's a gateway virtue because it opens the door to so many other additional blessings. Some of those blessings are a thankful heart is going to have more joy. It's going to be happier than a heart that doesn't give thanks. Because a heart that doesn't give thanks is moving God out of the focus of their mind, their thoughts. And so now they're dwelling upon all the bad things, all the trials. But a thankful heart that brings God into the picture and is thankful for the blessings that we have is going to be have more joy. It's going to be a happier heart. A thankful heart will also produce the blessing of a humble heart, humility. See, the thankful heart is not going to be like Nebuchadnezzar who stood up on his palace looking out over his gardens, boasting, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? See, a thankful heart will be humble. Oh God, thank you for this blessing. It's not boasting, look what I have built, what I have attained, what I have earned. It's a a humble heart. A thankful heart produces the blessing of a humble heart. A thankful heart will also produce more contentment in life. It will be more satisfied, more accepting of our circumstances, even though if they be trials, because we're thankful. We're just thankful. A thankful heart realizes that God is in control, that God is sovereign that God has promised that He's going to work all things together for good. And so it can bring more contentment. A thankful heart can also bring more peace. Remember we just uh, read earlier Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. And no doubt that's why that verse was chosen for our Scripture reading because it says, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, the thankful heart brings more peace into the midst of a chaotic life. It deflates worry and anxiety when we, when we give thanks to God. And I think that's why Paul embedded that in the middle of that text. 
Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Don't be full of anxiety. Why? But give thanks to God for those circumstances that are bringing the worry. Thank God for that. Acknowledge His sovereignty. Acknowledge His good purpose in it. And that will help defuse the anxiety and the worry and fill our hearts with God's peace. It can be a real battle, but a thankful heart is a gateway virtue into greater peace with God and having more peace in our hearts. A thankful heart is going to enable us to live with the mentality that the glass is half full rather than half empty. You've heard that expression a lot. The, the glass half full mentality is a more optimistic, is more cheerful. Well, I've got a glass. Of, look, I've got half of it. My goodness, look, look at that. I've got half. It's not an empty glass. I've got half of that glass full of water. Man, that's wonderful. Or the glass is half empty. Look at that. I have a whole glass of water. And all I've got is half a glass. Someone took the other half. I, I need a whole glass. And it's just a complaining, bitter spirit. If you have a thankful heart, you're going to have more of a the glass is half full mentality. So there's many, many blessings that come to us when we just live our life being thankful. Thankful for... Look at the blessings that you have. And why should we be thankful uh, for the blessings that we receive? Well, again, as we've already heard this morning, because... It's not good to be ungrateful. Ingratitude is really one of the worst sins of omission. You know, there's two kinds of sins. You have a sin of commission. That is, we do what we shouldn't do. Okay, that's a sin of commission. But there's also a sin of omission where we don't do what we should do. That's a sin of omission. And ingratitude is a sin of omission that describes the pagan idolaters in romans chapter one they did not honor god or give him thanks they didn't give him thanks they were guilty of the sin of ingratitude when we are not a thankful people and we are committing the sin of omission of ingratitude we're withholding thanksgiving from god we rob god of his glory we steal from God what is rightfully His by not giving Him thanks. We deny and ignore His involvement in our lives. We become practical atheists. We cheapen His blessings and treat them as just common dirt that we don't even want to stop and thank God for, that we just take them so for granted they're not even meaningful to us anymore. So that we're robbing, we're stealing glory from God. We think that we deserve more than what we get, so we're not appreciative of what we have. So, so don't be stingy in our thanksgiving. Because every day we receive a, an ocean full of God's mercies and how wrong it is to return only a teaspoon full of praise. Why should we give thanks for our blessings? Well, not only because ingratitude is one of the worst sins, but thanksgiving is one of the signs of true faith and walking by the Spirit. It's amazing. In Ephesians 5, Paul exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit, and then he describes the kind of life that is filled with the Spirit. 
He says, speaking to one another, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart. And then he says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God. See, that's a sign that we're filled with the Spirit. So if we're not giving thanks, what does that say about us? Well, we're not as filled with the Spirit as we should be. So why should we give thanks? Well, because it's a mark of someone who is walking by the Spirit and has their their mind fixed upon the Lord. Another reason why we should give thanks to God is because thanksgiving honors God. Psalm 50 verse 23 says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Again, we honor God. When we give thanks to God, we acknowledge that it came from God. He's the giver. He's the source. And when we give thanks for God, even for our trials and our troubles, we're acknowledging again His sovereignty, His goodness, His wisdom, His mercy, His grace. He's going to use it for the good. We can even give thanks to God for that. A thankful heart also prevents many other sins. A hardened heart, murmuring spirit, spiritual pride, a thankful heart can dissolve all of those other sins within our heart. So there's many reasons why we should give thanks to God. Well, how do we enlarge a thankful heart? Because if you're like me, I realize, man, I don't give thanks to God nearly like I should. So how how would we go about enlarging a thankful heart? Well, here's a couple of thoughts in wrapping up. The first thing we need to remember is that we're unworthy of any and all of our blessings that we receive, even the smallest ones we're unworthy of. Paul tells us that by nature we're born children of wrath. And so often we forget that. We don't think about that. We have such an entitlement culture in which we live, we all just begin to think that I deserve that. You know, I've earned that. And yet that breeds ingratitude. What we need to think daily is I don't deserve anything. That by nature I'm a child of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 3. That God could let me take all of my sins like a millstone tied around my neck and cast me into the depth of the, of the lake of fire. That's what I deserve. As a sinner who has broken God's commandments, as a sinner who has rebelled against God, who has mocked God, who has stolen glory from God, I don't deserve anything. So that I ought to be more appreciative of even the little things. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I had asthma real bad. And I remember the struggle of just trying to take a deep breath and the claustrophobic atmosphere sometimes that you're fighting. And, and by the grace of God, I finally grew out of that. And I remember sometimes just, just taking a breath and thanking God that I could actually take a deep breath. And so oftentimes we take the little, tiny little blessings for granted. And yet we need to really think and remind ourselves daily that we don't deserve any of them. We don't deserve God's blessings. We deserve His judgment. 
And when we begin to think that way, we'll be more appreciative. We'll be more thankful for even the little things that God gives to us in our life. We should also remember that every spiritual blessing that we have was bought and paid for us by the precious blood of Christ. My salvation, freely given to me, cost God the sacrifice of His only begotten Son. That Jesus Christ in His love for us had to go to the cross. He had to have all of our sins laid upon Him and bear the full magnitude, the eternal consequences of the wrath of God for every one of my sins. And when I realize that all of the, the blessings I take for granted, being a child of God, having the hope of heaven, having my sins forgiven, that Christ paid a horrible, dreadful price when He suffered to earn those blessings for each one of us. We forget that. We forget the magnitude of His suffering, the intense pain. And when we forget that, we cheapen the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Oh, that the Lord would remind us of the depth of His sufferings and that that love would provoke within us more of a thankfulness for the blessings that we have in Christ. And then finally, just remember how rare a thankful heart is. We all struggle with it. Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where where are the nine? There's only one that's coming back. Ten received an incredible blessing, but only one is falling on their face and worshiping God and giving thanks to Christ. Where are the ten? How many of us are like the nine who have received some great blessing and have failed to give thanks to God? How many of us in this room have recently recovered from some illness and yet have not really gone back and really humbled ourselves and given glory to God for the healing that we've received? How many of us have been given a job when we needed it at the right time and we haven't stopped and just praised God for that job? How many of us have received food daily, clothes in our closet, shelter over our heads, and we Don't stop and thank God for our daily bread or for our clothes or for our shelter. How many of us have been rescued from some great problem? Maybe we've overcome some troubling sin. Maybe we've had fears that have never come to pass. We've received mercy and salvation in Christ. We've been given the gift of Holy Scripture. We've been given the hope of glory as unclean foreigners, as unclean Gentiles. We've been given the gift of salvation and everlasting life. And one day we will see see Christ face to face. But where are the nine? Where are those who return and give thanks to God? Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Where are you? Where am I? And may the rarity of a thankful heart motivate us to be more like this Samaritan.
who came back and fell on his face and praised God for the gift of the healing that he received. You know, the thankful heart is a happy heart. It's a more cheerful heart. It's a more God-centered heart. A thankful heart has a more sanctified outlook on life. A thankful heart is a, is a heart that, that beams forth with more blessings and overflows with it. Remember many years ago, I used to, um, once a month I would drive to, to Norman and I would go to a Rivermont Retirement Center there and I would lead a, a church service on Sunday afternoons. They call it a Vespers service. I had a group of these little old, old people that would come to this service. And one particular Sunday, one of the little old ladies there, the widow by the name of Peg Chastain, uh, it was her birthday. And so before we actually started the studying of the Scriptures, they had Peg come up to say a few words. Peg Chastain, she was probably in her, I guess, upper 80s. I'm not sure exactly how old she was, but she had a lot of health struggles. And her spine was so deformed that she was bent over in half. And she walked with a cane, but she, she, she walked like, like this because she, could not, she couldn't raise up. And she had a lot of pain in her life, but uh, she she kind of hobbled up to the front, and and someone handed her a microphone. She grabbed that microphone, and she started thanking God. And she said, "Oh God, I just want everybody to know how thankful I am that the people who work in the office, boy, they're so good to us. They treat us so well." And oh God, I want to thank you for, for the people that work back in the kitchen and, and they make our food for them. I, I've never met any of them personally, but I'm so thankful for the hard work that they do in making our food every day. And I'm so thankful for the, the people who come by and pick up our laundry every week and they wash our so our sheets are clean and and I'm so thankful for the people that sweep the the floors in here and they look so nice and I think they finally had to come up and take the mic away from her but a thankful heart lives with a perpetual feast because you're surrounded by the goodness of God and that's what a thankful heart lives in, that, that atmosphere of God is so good. Look at what He's blessed me with. And, and you have a choice this morning. You can either focus on your problems and your trials and the disappointments and the failures, and you'll have a gloomy life and you'll probably commit the sin of ingratitude a lot. Or you can... Lift your eyes up and see the goodness of God and look around you and see the good hand of God all around your life. And you can be thankful to God. And you can give Him praise and thanksgiving. And you will live your life with a perpetual feast for your soul because you're focusing on the goodness of Almighty God. See, Peg Chastain's 
cup was not just half full. It was full to the brim and overflowing. And that's really what the Lord calls all all of us to do. We need to be filled with the Spirit to do it, but we need to give thanks to God in everything. So Lord, help us to have that kind of a thankful heart. And as we gather with family and friends on Thursday and we remember what the pilgrims did and living us such a, a rich legacy of the importance of giving thanks to God, let us remember it should be a daily thing for us. And may the Spirit of God so work in our hearts that we develop that godly grace of giving thanks to God. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Father God, we come to You in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we humble ourselves, dear Lord, for our many sins of ingratitude. Lord, how often we can go for days and not even remember a single blessing that we have stopped and given You thanks for. And Lord, we confess that. And we pray that by Your Spirit, that You will heal our eyes. Help us to see the good hand of God all around us and fill us with a thankful heart. Lord, there's so many things, so many troubles, so many sins, so many bad things happening in the world. Now, Lord, we acknowledge that and we pray for Your mercy in all those areas. But Lord, fill our heart with a, with a thankfulness, Lord, that is God-centered, a thankfulness that rejoices in Jesus Christ, that thanks You for all of our material and physical blessings, great and small. But most of all, that we revel every day in the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that we thank You for the blessings that we can never lose. And may our countenance be lifted May our life show the joy of walking in fellowship with the, with the God of the universe who sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And dear Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has never placed their faith and trust in Christ alone, oh God, would You convict them of their sin? Would You remind them of the day of judgment coming? And that you would open their hearts to understand that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. And that you would give them grace to believe and trust in Christ. That you would give them a thankful heart for all that Jesus has done to save them from their sins and bring them into your family. So Lord, we just want to thank You today. We want to give You praise for all of our blessings. We glorify Your holy name, Lord, in the name of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.